Bibles this morning, please. We're going to consider Philippians chapter 1. We're in one of the great long autobiography, autobiography sections in Paul's uh, corpus of writing. We're in one of the sections of Paul's letters where he tells about himself. We all know people that would rather talk about themselves than hear about us. Sometimes we are those people. We all know people that are just waiting for you to stop talking in what should be a conversation so that they can say what they want to say. It's pretty challenging, actually, if you think about the things going on in a conversation. You really do need to process what someone says, listen to them, understand it. You want to integrate what they say with your thoughts and, uh, and, and respond and, and you know, think and talk together. And so not only do you need to receive what's being said, but you need to process it and then have something to say. It's a pretty complicated thing. So some people can't do both. They can either just say what they think or they can hear what you have to say and think about it. And that's not really a conversation either way. And horrible, horrible conversation partners. We all (laughs) probably need to repent at times about that. What's interesting in Paul's letters is it's a long uh, conversation. He's gotten letters from the Philippians, from Epaphroditus, and now he's saying something back to them. And so uh, letter correspondence is a type of conversation. And what Paul does in Philippians 1 is um, answers their question. And they send him a sincere question, apparently. And it is, how are you? How are you dealing with? with the hardship that you're facing. How is it for you? We want to know. Think about a family member that you're on good terms with, a sibling that you're really like a best friend, and they're they're in hardship. They're imprisoned and overseas under unjust conditions, but they are receiving mail correspondence. That's kind of the situation, if you think about it. We think of it as a kind of a kid gloves. Yeah, for the Roman imprisonment. The Romans aren't treating people with kid gloves. It is at times a house arrest in in some cases, and in other cases not. I mean, he is able to write these prison letters, so he has something flat, a flat surface. He has pen. He has some sort of paper or vellum or parchment or something. He has associates that can correspond with him, so he's not in isolation, but he is under duress, and we read about some of that in Philippians. Some people are preaching Christ to raise trouble in my bonds. They're trying to increase my hardship because whatever conditions Paul has, the people supervising him can further restrict his liberty. They can say, okay, bread and water, or okay, no more visitors, or whatever. They're trying to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And so these Philippians who love Paul and are on mission for the gospel are concerned for him and want to hear how he's doing. And what happens because of that situation of Paul's suffering and the Philippians' concern so that Paul has an occasion to answer their questions, that becomes the occasion for you and me to learn how to live the Christian life because Paul tells us what's going on in his heart. 
Paul tells us how he thinks about his life, and he uses that to make an example for them and says, you need to follow this example. So you've got a historical occasion of hardship and Christian concern on the, on the history side of it. But the theological result because of the inspiration of the Spirit is you and I get to know how to live as Christians. That is profound. And Paul tells you the most profound thing he's probably said about himself or could say about himself in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for me, as for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's the deal with me. And the Greek seems to be fairly explicit that he's, he's doing about uh, now with regard to me. If you want to think about me, think for, for Paul to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. What that means, what I want is what Jesus wants. What I'm focused on is what he wants me to be focused on. What I'm after in my life in terms of my goals and aspirations are his goals and aspirations. And this isn't nebulous or mystical. And I wonder what of all the many possible focuses in life I could pick. It's not like that. It's there's one focus. Jesus has communicated it. And then how you express it, that's your individual piece of that expression. It's the gospel ministry. It really is. We are well-named, although we don't, the, the category doesn't really work anymore. But the, the, the claim of evangelical, have you ever heard that, you know, what's an evangelical? People think of the religious right or the liberty people out in, in uh, Virginia or, or uh, evangelical just means focused on the ministry of the gospel. And that, that adjective comes from Paul's letters, not from the, the word evangelical, but the idea that how would you classify Christians that are Pauline, that are focused on the mission, therefore they're Christian, they're focused on what Jesus, well, it's, the, it's the gospel ministry. Your spiritual gift is toward that, in, in, that enterprise. The assembly of the local church is for this enterprise. The word of God raising you into spiritual maturities for, for mature service is to this enterprise. The whole of your life is this process this project this evangelization and edifying of believers that's a great term now you, you use the adjective today evangelical it's like fundamentalist what does it mean people don't know what it means and they think it means um fundamental uh, fundy means uh, self-righteous and closed-minded and knuckle-dragging and non-reflective and uh, and all that non-critical and thinking and all that um i think that language probably better applies to uh, the, 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 the culture of higher education in this country than it does to fundamentalists. Because there's not critical thinking, there's just group think, there's just what we've, what we've all been taught to think and believe. An example would be the claim that wildfires in California are caused by carbon emissions. We just know this, and it's, a, it's actually a religious claim. They don't know this. But in the news, I'm, I was checking out earlier. The governor of California gets out and says, well, these, these forest fires are caused by global warming. And, and these people that deny science. Well, how do you get, where's the scientific measurements that show you the correlation between carbon emissions and forest fires? They don't have them. Now, I'm telling you that. You can, can go look it up. Go try to find the, um, the, the scientific like measurements that show you the observational science that shows you it's not it's just faith but but that's but that's the way fundamentalists are treated they're treated as though they they don't know and they don't reflect they just blindly believe well i think everybody's dealing with faith 
Fundamentalists used to mean people that believed in the Bible as written, and they're going like we approach the Bible. But it became people that say that they don't do the following things, and so they become legalists, and that's a fundy. The problem is always going to, wherever you go, whatever alignment you get, you're going to get a problem of human laziness, and you're going to miss the point. But Paul doesn't. Paul is evangelical in that he's focused on the gospel, and he's fundamentalist in that he's focused on uh, the sufficiency of the scriptures. And he believes it as written, and he lives his life from the perspective that God's word is true. And I know you guys, nine o'clock Sunday morning people, you all agree with this. I know you're there. I just want you to understand um, this profound declaration for me to live as Christ and to die as gain is a daily commitment we make. It's a daily uh, standard we hold ourselves to. And it's a, it, at times it's something we don't rise to. The, to. We, we're not there. And here, remember what happens when you have high standards and you don't meet them. There's two choices you can make. You can say, this is the bar and I didn't meet it and I need to change and, and own what I own and, and confess whatever I need to confess to God and get back in my focus on whatever the standard is or we change the standard. We lower the bar. Well, no, nobody's really gonna live as though their whole life is Christ and that if they die, they believe that that is gain and that I gain to see Christ. I get to be with the one I want to see the most. So which one of those two are you going to do with this standard for me to live as Christ dies gain? Now, what does the legalist do with this? The legalist thinks they now have a rule that they can think they've kept. Well, in Philippians 3, Paul shuts that down. I haven't already attained. Things behind, I leave, leave behind. I stretch forward to the things ahead. Okay, I'm, I'm reaching toward that for which Christ laid hold of me. I, I'll never say I'm mature. I'll never say I'm there, but it's the standard and it's the question of your life. And it's a great uh, thing to reflect on this little verse of 21. But Paul says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, then this will mean for me fruitful work and what to choose. I do not know. Thankfully, as we said last Sunday, you don't need to choose whether you're going to live or die. That's God's business. But if it was up to me is kind of the hypothetical, whether to continue in this life of suffering and service for the Lord, or just to be present with the Lord Jesus and enjoy him. Well, I mean, face to face, that's kind of an obvious, um, uh, do I serve you or do I serve myself in getting Jesus face to face is kind of the idea. It's kind of obvious the way, which one would be a better experience, but then, you know, well, I mean, the more I suffer here for the Lord, the more I can glorify him in a way that I'll never be able to do again. And so I don't, it's so great that whether I live or die is, is, an, is an awesome privilege, is what he says. Now, this choice that he says, I don't know which to choose, is God's choice. You are here today, so you're, the choice was made for you. You get to live today, and it's a privilege you can serve God with. And when God makes the choice that you're not here physically anymore, you're absent from us, but you're present with the Lord, that's, that's his choice too. And you want to live your life that way. And I think everything in life kind of follows that way. The fundamental things that happen to you that define the way your life goes, that God decided that you would be a man or a woman. Fundamental things in life that are determined that you didn't have any choice about. Your existence is one of them what sex you are is one of those things. It's amazing how, how these things work. 
Another thing that is this way, that is something that you don't have a choice about, but you have to choose how you're going to respond to it. It turns out to be whatever your responsibilities and obligations are. Did you ever think about that? You don't get to choose what you're responsible for. Not really. Now, there are times where we, obviously, when we make a commitment, we, we assume an obligation or responsibility that we didn't have before. But God prepared works in advance that we'd walk in, right? So when it comes to what's moral, it's not really a choice for whether it's, not, whether it's moral or whether it's right or wrong. The question is, what do I do about what God said is right or wrong? And this is, this is what happens when you bring God into your perspective about everything in life is that there's always that question of what does he want, and I'll take what I feel like as second. What I want is second. What God wants must be primary. And so Paul gives you this hypothetical, what to choose, I, I do not know, and you never will. This is good news that you don't have to make this choice. It's on God for when you are going to be absent from your body and present with the Lord. But he says, I'm hard-pressed. I have, I have, in both directions, I really have a desire I'm, I'm hard-pressed from the two, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is very much better in terms of my day-to-day, moment-by-moment experience. Hmm, eternal bliss in the presence of my Savior, or walking in the flesh, under suffering, with Satan's world attacking me, with the sinful nature attacking me, with all the troubles and hardships of this life, and I have to trust in the one that I cannot see. Hmm, I wonder which one of those would be better. It's very much better to be with him in terms of your experience, but to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. So obligations. Paul was called to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his obligation. And do you know that Jesus, if you go back to Acts 9, as we've talked about in the Christian life of Paul, he didn't have a choice about being an apostle. He had a choice of, since he was told to be one, he had a choice of choosing to do what he was told to or not. It's very interesting how that works in your life. And is God in charge? Is he, is he God? Have you sanctified God in your heart and set him apart as the one whose priority is paramount? To remain in the flesh is necessary for you. And since I've been convinced of this, I know that I will abide. Since I know that my life has impact on your life, that if I continue, then that edifies you. Since I'm convinced of this is what he says in verse 25. Since I know that my, I'm not just sitting here independent of you. I'm not just, well, nobody cares about Paul or whatever Paul's doing. Since I know that my life is being used by God to impact your life, I'll, I'll continue. So yes, that I'm going to keep abiding in this life because of those to whom I minister. I will continue with all of you for your progress and the joy of the faith, your progress and joy of the faith. And we really emphasize progress and joy. There's a spiritual growth Okay, there's a consequence of being on mission that is joy that you can't get elsewhere. And it is of the faith, the body of truth that we believe, the trustworthy word of God. So that your boast may abound in Christ Jesus in me. The Greek does that, your, your boast, your brag about what you have to, what you really want to share and, and you're excited about and um, what you're promoting is in Christ and because of his plan and his arrangements and the apostleship and, and that ministry relationship, therefore in me. So you don't boast in Paul, he's the best. You boast in Christ and what Christ is doing through the apostle Paul 
through my coming again to you. So uh, a couple of things in verse 26, we're told there's a legitimate boast. There's a legitimate brag. You know, as a kid, we teach our kids, don't boast, don't brag, don't draw attention to yourself, don't make an issue of yourself. We, we need to be teaching our children that. You know, the, the great lesson that we learn every day, it's not about us, it's not about me, it's about the Lord. And humility doesn't boast. Humility doesn't brag. Well, the idea of being excited about something in your life and wanting to share it with others and say, can you believe what I'm about to share with you? We swap the sinful tendency to glorify self and say, let me tell you what excellent thing I'm involved in. And we put it on Jesus. And so we have this desire to share. We have this desire to promote, to exalt, but we stop exalting ourselves and we exalt God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your boast, your proclamation. Remember the Thessalonians, these other Macedonians are, uh, are setting the whole Mediterranean on fire with their gospel spread. It's radiating out at an incredible rate as we read in 1 Thess 1 because they're telling everybody the story of Paul and Thessalonica, because they're um, sharing about the gospel ministry, because they're talking about Paul, which is really about what God did for them through the apostolic teaching, and they're spreading it, and Paul is hearing reports back. This is what we're talking about, the boast that they have. Boasting is something that you do when you're confident. It's something that you do when you're, when you're in, a, in a, a right kind of assertiveness in this case. It's when you're not compromised by fear. We live in a time where there's a lot of boasting. There's a lot of grandstanding politically and on both sides. There's, there's a lot of, um, of bluster. And that's, to me, that's politics. Politics are known for being blustery, bombastic, and I don't care about politics. I care about policy, right? I, I don't care about the way someone's portrayed in their branding. I care about the principles that I think are priority, paramount, and then how they're being dealt with. And so to me, politics is just a ruse for people that don't want to pay attention to principle. And most people don't. But um, Paul says we have a tendency to boast, and they do in Christ, in Paul through my coming again to you. And that's what, the, what I think verse 26 looks like. What it means is that when Paul, who is freed from prison again in Rome and gets to go see the Philippians, when he gets to go make another visit to Macedonia, which we don't know about in the Bible, besides this little reference, my coming again to you. When Paul gets to do this, the people are going to be telling their friends about it. They're going to be talking. Paul's coming. And they're excited. And see, now think about personally, we're limited people. We, we live in the world of dealing with others and we can't see God, but we focus on him through his word. So we know him the way he's communicated himself, but we can see people and hear what they say. He doesn't feel this way so much about the Corinthians up in Achaia. He feels this way about the Macedonians, the Philippians. And what I mean is the Corinthians don't boast in Paul and Christ and Christ on, on, they don't boast in what God is doing for them through Paul. They talk about how Paul is strong in letter, but weak in person. He's just not, he's not a very good speaker. And, and, and they're listening to people that aren't apostles of Jesus who haven't been sent on their account by the Lord. 
they're listening to people who are um, flashy. And so personally, this is, this is one of the great things about the letter to the Philippians. It's very personal. It's very affectionate. It's very commending and, and, and salutary for their, their gospel ministry as partners. And uh, the contrast between them and the Corinthians is uh, stark. In fact, the Philippians sent a, a, an offering to support Paul while he ministered to the Corinthians for a long time, 18 months, I believe, in Corinth. Corinthians didn't support Paul. They didn't care. They didn't, they didn't care enough to, to, about the ministry of the gospel. They didn't boast in Christ and Paul. And they didn't support him, but the Philippians did. And Paul says, I robbed other churches. I wasn't even ministering to them. I was ministering to you, Christians, on the nickel of these people who did support. And so the, the strike, stark contrast uh, comes to mind when you hear this word boast. I want to say also, it's these words like this, like my boast. We're like, well, that's, that word seems to be a bad thing we're, we're not supposed to do, right? But here Paul talks about how they do it, and it's a good thing. These kind of words give us a little bit of... Um, of pause. And I think there's a lot of help to see how the Christian life works. I mean, you're supposed to be rejoicing in the ministry of the gospel in Christ, and you're supposed to be talking about it. All right. Well, Paul is boasting and they're boasting and it's in the Lord. And it isn't a boast for Paul to say for me to live as Christ. But having given this illustration, Paul then tells them, I've told you how it is on my, on my account, how it's going for me, for me to live as Christ. Now, here's my command to you. We've gone from Paul's indicative, this is how my life is, to what we're going to get is Paul's imperative, what I command of you, what you Philippians have to do. And Preston City Bible Church, I think, is in the Philippian club. So let's say we're getting it right. What does Paul say to us? Take a break? Take a pause? No. He says, fight on. You're doing well, do better. Ronald Reagan once said that, uh, so let me paraphrase, he said that, um, that freedom is only, always one generation away from being extinguished. That you, you have a heritage of freedom in this country, but the next generation behind can easily slough off and vote away its privileges and its freedom and some sort of interest of the government providing your needs. As Reagan would have said, the government providing your needs. You listen to the old California speeches. It was great. Government. And, and this is how the Christian life goes. You had a success. You had a Mount Carmel experience. Well, you're one, you're one bad choice away from walking off the, the bead, from missing the point, from getting it wrong. Because as we said last week, you're steering the car. You're driving, right? And you, hey, that was some good driving you just did. But you're still driving. So you still have to make good decisions. And, uh, and every engagement is a question. Will you get it right? Every engagement. And that's how we grow. Don't you want to rest? Don't you want to just not have to make good choices? Wouldn't you like to sit in the train and just ride someone else can drive? Well, um, you're in this flesh, in this life, dealing with this mission. And there's coming a time for you not to have to deal with the flesh and the world and the devil. But this isn't that time. So we rest in Christ as we shoulder the load, the light burden and the easy yoke that he's given us. And so in verse 27, only, monon, only, worthy of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves as citizens. Only 
is a summary way of thinking about your life. It's another one of these words that bothers me. I read it, he says only, and he starts off with this only. And so what does that mean only? He says, it, it, it tells you that it's the title of the book. It's the summary of everything only. How will I live my life? What will I do as far as wife, kids, job, Chevy or Ford, you know, the decisions in life. What, what am I going to do with my life? Well, the details of life need to take their rightful place. The details of life, your marriage, your children, these are details in life. We're told by the Lord Jesus in discipleship discourses through the gospels. There is a, a, a sense in which you are to hate your family members. And that's a real challenge for people. Well, it's too hard, Jesus, to say this. He doesn't mean that you hate them in the flesh as a sin. He means that compared, it's a word picture in comparison. Compared to your devotion to Jesus Christ, these things are a very distant second family and marriage and spouse and children and these awesome things that God all through the scripture says were designed for and they're a blessing and he loves you and he gave them to you. Because the blessings are not anywhere near as important as the source of the blessings. And so only is a summary of your whole life, of everything you're doing, and it puts all the details in their place. And it, again, it doesn't mean you do the second Thessalonian error of uh, selling your business and going to stand and wait for the rapture, stand up on a cliff and I want to be raptured from this spot. Come and get me, Lord Jesus. That's not what we mean. We don't mean that you don't work hard at work and then work hard when you get home to work on your family at home, gentlemen. And, and ladies that work away from home, when, you, when it's time to be with family, it's work. It's work. But I just want to come home and rest. Well, rest in the joy that you have work to do. Right? And, and so Paul says only because he's grabbing the entirety of life and saying, this is your life. It is the study closely in Philippians for me in 2004 and 2005 that changed my life, perhaps in a, in a more aggressive sort of exponential rate than anything else I've ever done in the word because of this word in part only, only whatever else is going on, which means there are parts of my life that I don't think of as part of the gospel ministry, as part of conducting myself as a citizen of, of, of the coming kingdom, really a citizen of heaven and the kingdom of heaven is coming in this coming kingdom. I don't consider every aspect of life this way, but Paul grabs all of it. Now, this is, watch this. This is for the Philippians. They're getting it right. This is for Christians that are sharing the gospel. They're working together with Paul as they give to promote the ministry of the gospel. So they're his partners. These are Christians that are walking in fellowship with God. And so Paul says, uh, now we're going we're gonna to focus in and make sure that your life is what all it's supposed to be. And most Christians in my culture don't take God up on this offer. They don't choose to look at their lives as only worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves as citizens. In fact, when you read through verse 27 in your Bible, whatever English translation, I think we have a tendency, my Bible in English, uh, New American Standard says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It, brings, it doesn't bring out the citizenship aspect. But when you read it in your English Bible, don't you get a sense that this means don't say b bad words? You know, press your pants. D don't abuse your coworkers. 
Basically, we think of the things that good people do and we say, be a good, be a good boy, be a good girl. We think it's basic manners and morality. But in context, Paul's talking about partners in the ministry of the gospel and for Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Only worthy of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves as citizens. The word that we're focusing in on here besides only is polituo, P-O-L-I-T-E-U-O, polituo, which in the New American is translated, New American Standard is translated, conduct yourselves. But the word polituma is a, is a, is a colony, a Roman colony, and it means that the people who live there are citizens of Rome, and it's the high privilege. And this is one of the things in Philippians that they don't bring out in their English translations that's right there. Philippi is a Roman colony, and the people there, the Philippians, consider themselves especially privileged. Whatever class stratum of society you're in, in Philippi, you think we of Philippi are Roman citizens or of Rome. And so the citizens of Philippi are Roman citizens, and that's a big deal of privilege and, and honor and esteem that has been paid to this Roman colony. And uh, when we say colony, I know you, th you and I think of, you know, the expansion after the explorers and the colonization of, the, of Europe, of, of this hemisphere, but that's not what we mean. It means that this place that is an outpost, it's like an outpost of the head city of Rome, where um, you could go from Rome to Philippi, and once you get there, it's the same as if you're in Rome in terms of privileges and um, governance. And so this, and this idea of polituo, to conduct yourself as a citizen, carries with it civic virtue shoulder the load of heavy burden that's been placed on you of carrying forth the ethics, the principles, the practices of the great Roman empire. That's the idea of a Roman citizen. You have great privilege. And as we all know, with great privilege or power comes great responsibility. But that's a biblical principle stolen by uh, the movies. It's true. The great privilege you have as citizens of heaven means you have great responsibilities of state. The ambassador must conduct himself as though he's a representative of the, of the monarch that he's coming to, to represent. So the ambassador is very careful with what he says. He's very careful with how he lives and he is dignified befitting that high state. So he's the, he's the king's spokesman in that foreign country. And, and so he's telling you, that's the way for you to think about your life. But he starts with worthy of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves as citizens. The country we belong to is the gospel of Christ in the metaphor. This has led some to think because they haven't read the Old Testament closely and they don't care what it says. This has led some to think that uh, the gospel is how we're going to build the kingdom. And so when you preach the gospel, you're preaching uh, the kingdom in the sense that you're, the person believes and now they're in the kingdom of Jesus and it's a spiritual kingdom and Jesus is ruling over it uh, from his throne of David in heaven. And it's a very sloppy misunderstanding of Christian eschatology and the kingdom. 
Jesus is on his father's throne. And as we read in Revelation 3, those who overcome will be granted to sit with Jesus on his throne, just as he was granted to sit on his father's throne. There's two thrones. The coming throne of David, of the coming kingdom of Jesus, is how you and I relate to the coming kingdom. And citizenship, I believe, is of that. We are citizens of something that has not been established. It's all settled. It's all done. You are a citizen. How do you relate to that coming kingdom, the gospel? <laughs> how do you relate to the coming? How do I function as a minister of state before the state exists? Recruit for those who will join you in the already established administration once the kingdom is present. He's built his administration. It isn't functioning to administer. But when the kingdom comes, we're set up. We come back with Jesus in his second advent and our resurrection bodies. And he establishes his kingdom as we read in Romans 8. So he says, with this in view, that your gospel ministry is the way you are relating to the coming administration of the coming kingdom. Conduct yourselves as citizens. And he doesn't just leave you hanging. He's going to tell you what that looks like. But, but let me preview it for you. You say nothing, do nothing to contradict the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ dying for your sins, that if the people believe in it, then they will be with Christ in his coming kingdom. Just as Jesus preached, repent for the kingdoms in your grasp, we have a gospel message because the kingdom is still future. It is still coming. So what you're saying is God made you and God loves you and God wants you with him forever. That's the gospel. And the way he made sure that you could have life with him is that he took your sins and applied them to Jesus, his son on the cross. And Jesus paid for your sins in his own body on the cross. And so God's wrath on sin was exhausted on Jesus Christ. And so what you do about the work of Christ, you might have already done. By what I just said, you might have believed in Jesus as your Savior that he paid for your sins. You need to personalize that work of Christ on the cross. And that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're living from and living for that message that you're living out and you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling is your mission. And so you conduct yourselves as citizens. You have this hope, you have this joy, you have this confidence, you have boldness. You're not afraid of what someone will say against you or against Christ or against the gospel. They may, they may say that I'm just a silly uh, fideous. I just believe blindly and I don't have any evidence. And I can say to that, I believe, but I do have evidence. And the one who makes sure that there is something rather than nothing, the one who's always been there and he made everything that exists and holds it all together by the word of his power is uh, giving you plenty of evidence through creation. And the creation proclaims the glory of God. And I can give you lots of evidence, but until you trust in Jesus Christ, the one who makes it all so, the one, until you trust in Jesus Christ, then you are operating from a different set of faith presuppositions that have you blinded and deceived by your enemy, the one who wants to destroy you. That's really the, the conflict. So Paul says, conduct yourselves as citizens, only worthy of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves as citizens. I just want to say that your whole life is now under the aegis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are living out as though you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming governance. So that the effect of living as citizens is that whether Paul comes 
and sees you, or remaining absent, as we've been talking about in context, if I live or I die, whether I get to come to you or I'm absent, and it's a theme he, he runs all the way through. Philippians 2.12 says it also. Whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear about you. What I want to do is because you're conducting yourselves as though you belong to Jesus Christ and are therefore on his mission, I want to hear about you some interesting and important things. That you're standing firm in one spirit. In my view, conducting yourself worthy of the gospel means standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm, you believers in Philippi are together in one spirit. Which, and how do you get there? How do we get unity? Not by unity for its own sake, but by everyone committing himself and herself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone committing to this effort of the gospel and therefore walking worthy of your calling and, and therefore abiding in Christ, walking by the spirit, being saturated with the word of Christ, the spiritual life. You will get unity through the work of the Spirit in your life and, and my life. And, and, and as individuals, as we walk with the Lord, he will build this unity. But it's something, therefore, that we should see and seek. It's verses like this that have led some to say we should have uh, an, a hierarchical organization called uh, a church of Christ or some sort of church external that we can see and say it's all together it's all one and then we have to hire and train a whole administrative body of people that make sure everybody's the same and we're all in one spirit and we're all thinking the same way and we're all praying the same prayer and we're all smelling the same incense and all the same and same same and that's not what he's saying at all but you can see how people misunderstand and run run with something that isn't really the project Standing firm in one spirit is the consequence of individuals focusing on the, the word of truth and the Holy Spirit transforming individual hearts. And it's a miracle. It is a miracle. Here's what you get. Different people in different places in their spiritual growth. So you have a differential. You're coming at this from a different uh, family background from anyone else, unless you have siblings. And then you know that that's a problem familiarity breeds contempt. You've got all the differences between people, including differential and spiritual growth. In Corinth, they're different on who they like to hear. We, we like to hear Apollos and we like to hear Paul. And we, we, we just don't need to listen to anybody. We've got Jesus. And, and, and you get that kind of difference. You get all the baby playpen squabbles and everybody gets a little bit of truth. And then they stop looking at Jesus and they start looking at themselves and trying to play spiritual king of the mountain or something. And, and the only way you get what Paul is talking about is that you don't look at you and you don't get your eyes on people. You look at the Lord Jesus Christ and then for his sake, you consider one another. That's it. That's the unity. And it doesn't exist otherwise. So he says, you're standing firm in one spirit. And this is a metaphor, not the Holy Spirit. It's a metaphor for one worldview, one mental attitude, one like-mindedness. That phrase is... Uh, a landmine, like-minded. This is people that like to hear the, the Bible taught the same way. People think that's what like-minded means. I like to hear this certain esoteric set of vocabulary words. And if somebody will rattle off the, the esoteric vocabulary words, then we're like-minded. Oh, comfortable. I have, I have confirmation bias or something. I would call that light closed-mindedness. And <laughs> what I mean is, it's, don't, it's, a, it's kind of a spiritual laziness where I don't want to think 
I want to be told what to think. And if I'm told what to think in this way of, of saying it, and this guy tells me what to think, in this, and it's all the same, we all hear the same way of telling me what to think, then, then I, I have like mind. And that's not what Paul's talking about. One spirit is the whole of you is aligned with, the, with God's word as you're walking in fellowship with him and you're thinking his thoughts after him. You're really thinking and you're saturated with the scriptures. This is standing firm in one spirit. But the, 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 um, part of, the, the main verb of this uh, relative clause is standing firm. It is stako and it is the theme word for what, it, what follows. Not so much the oneness. There is a lot of oneness in the passage, but it's the standing firmness because it's under attack. Satan has so many alternatives to one spirit unity on Christ. I mentioned one just now, light closed-mindedness. It's a distraction. Do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do you believe in the deity of Christ? Same question. Yes. Do you believe in the sufficiency of scripture? Yes. Do you believe it's all inspired by God? Yes. Do you believe therefore it's without error? Absolutely. No question. Do you believe that it's sufficient for life and godliness? Yes. Do you believe that if you study the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be uh, more and more maturing in Christ so that you're more mature in your capability to think his thoughts and to serve him on his terms? Yes. Then why do we divide? Well, style. And it, see, that's politics. I hate politics. It's just silliness. I like to study the question of government. I like, to, I like to look at principle, but politics is silliness. What he's saying here is that there are attacks on your unity and you need to hold fast and fight for it. Stand firm, as Stako, to stand firm. Take your stand with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. He said one spirit before, now he says one soul. And one approach to the scriptures would be trying to isolate the immaterial parts of a person to really kind of understand, well, the spirit is the standing firm part of you and the contending for the gospel is the soul part of you. And that is a misreading of what Paul's doing. Spirit and soul are synonymous the way he's talking. He's talking about the immaterial and the worldview aspects. One spirit is the, the unified attitude and one soul would reflect on the, the, the immaterial you that has that attitude. Spirit is a very flexible term. Soul means person, pretty much. And so you are unified as the principle, but you have to fight for it. Standing firm in one spirit with the result that you're with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. Now, I told you the worthy of the gospel of Christ, you conduct yourself as citizens. And that's the summary of your life because of the word only. And then when you get down to verse what is that? Verse 28. I forgot to put my verse. No, it's still verse 27. You get down here in this awesome and complicated verse. You are with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. That means fighting. The word contending is soon athleo, where we get the word athleo is to, to, to compete in a, in a race or to compete in a con, an, an athletic contest. It's where we get the word for athletics and the word, and it's this word contending, contending for the faith of the gospel means I'm fighting I'm, I'm striving, I am in a race. And so it's a battle. You know, um, the gridiron is a battle. We think of it as a, a friendly competition and all that, but, but it's a fight to see who can get the, the oblong ball across the, the, finish, across, the uh, across the goal line. 
across the touchdown line. We're trying to get the, the, the thing across the thing. <laughs> but it's a fight. And so with one soul, you are fighting, you're contending, um, striving, or organizing your energy resources for the faith of the gospel. Now, personalities of preachers, these do not make unity unless you get some sort of weird moony, we all like the same speech kind of thing. That's not what we're after. We're for the faith of the gospel. And to me, this is a much more important problem in our time because as the Council of Trent did in the 1500s after the, the reaction to the Reformation, there's a great tendency among evangelicals today to say that the gospel is something other than faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in Jesus as your savior based on the work he did and not the work that you do. It's, a, it's, a, it's grace, not works. It's the faith that is just simple belief in Jesus as your savior. That gospel, that is Paul's gospel, is under great attack and evangelical dumb. I think the greatest attack on the gospel today, which means that we will not be in one spirit with people that so, so, so teach, the greatest attack is on the attack of the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The nature of Christ paying God's wrath, satisfying the wrath of God on sin and taking your place. So he had to suffer for your sins. That idea is under great attack by some of the most dynamic and eloquent um, teachers today. It's been a problem. It was a problem in popular Christendom back in the 50s and 40s with uh, he that is, I'm sorry, with um, uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, I can't remember anything today. I don't need to. Mere Christianity, sorry. C.S. Lewis' book, he denies the substitutionary atonement of Christ as an essential Christian doctrine. I've read it three times, and every time I read it, I'm like, I love it until I get to that, and I'm like, what? This is mere Anglicanism. He does it in his Narnia books too. I love C.S. Lewis, but I don't have to agree with all his theology. And he's got a real problem, I think, with the gospel when he says that it's not an essential to believe in the substitutionary work of Christ, that the, the nature of the atonement, the way forgiveness was secured was by satisfying the justice and the wrath of God on sin. So what did he do? Well, there's other theories of the atonement and what Jesus did at the cross. There's the example theory. There's the government theory. There's the uh, Christus victor, which is popular today, is that somehow we're victors because Jesus is the victor. So he, he gained victory over death through the resurrection. So because we trust in him, we gain victory over death. And you miss the mechanics. How did he get victory over death? He died for our sins. And so what does that mean about the gospel? Well, if if you deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ, then you're about to deny the essential faith in Christ as your savior from your sins. And you're gonna, you're gonna make it about something else. Standing firm in one spirit means that we're with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. So I think the fight over the atonement, it gets into academ and academ. The problem with academics is you can gather data and never come to conclusions. You keep getting more and more and more and more information from your research. Well, that it happens that there are thousands of people writing, maybe millions, and they all have ideas and you know about people and their ideas. They're entitled to them. 
But the battle over the atonement, I think, is something that we would have to be involved in to be one with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel is the body of truth that is believed. The faith of the gospel is the body of truth. It's the trustworthy, faithful word. And so we're contending not only that people would believe, but that they would know the content that is believed. And that's what Paul wants these Philippians to do. And in our time, we certainly have our share of that load. One of my favorite things when I have people with differences over things like um, the sequencing of the tribulation with respect to the rapture or how the book of Revelation works, the, the Augustinian interpretation, it's cyclic retelling of the same thing seven times where we see it as a sequential generally um, historical account of with tribulation and what will happen generally sequentially. Um, and, and, you know, you get these differences with people. What I find striking is how We'll talk about those differences, but if you want to bring the conversation back to sameness, you start talking about the nature of the atonement and how it's under attack by the biologos people. Same people that are deny Genesis 1 through 11 as history will deny the atonement of Christ as the payment for our sins. And so I'm trying to illustrate a little bit what this looks like contending for the faith of the gospel. There are all kinds of attacks. One attack is on your own personal moral life, the way you're living your life. And I know, I know oh no, here we go. Don't preach sin. But if you walk as though you don't belong to Jesus, and then you want to contend for who and what Jesus is and what he's done, you're a walking contradiction. And we have our standard. We don't change it. We fail our standard. We confess. We assume the standard and live by it, seek to live to it. And so it matters how you live because you have a mission. So you're standing firm in one spirit with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. And verse 28 is the same thought. It continues the same thought and not being intimidated in anything by your opponents. So what Paul wants to hear is they're standing firm in one spirit. And what that looks like is contending with one soul for the faith of the gospel. So unified on this doctrine, it is doctrinal. The faith of the gospel is doctrine. And so you're unified doctrinally and you're not intimidated in anything by your opponents. See the two edges? You're unified doctrinally and at the same time, you're not, you're not intimidated, weakened, you're not frightened of your opponents. Here's the challenge I've got with opponents to the gospel. They write big books. They have complicated arguments. And to understand what someone is saying very often feels like agreement. In fact, I, I know of a whole strain of Christendom that thinks that if you understand something, you have, you have believed it. So they can't read things that they disagree with because they feel like if they read it, they'll become in agreement or aligned with it. That's a real danger. Bad friends corrupt good morals. You know, you, you hang around with the wrong people, you start thinking like them. There's a danger there. And so what you need to do is be constantly fortified with the word, but to foray, to, to, to foray out into bad ideas so that you understand them so that you can contend with them, that's a, that's a lot of thinking. And it takes some grit. It takes some courage. It takes some constant commitment to what you believe in order to be exposed to what you don't believe. In the army, 
They have a mission-oriented protective posture. Remember that? It's horrible. What it means is, is it's a suit that you put on over your uniform. It's a suit that protects you. They call it MOP, Mission-Oriented Protective Posture MOP. They couldn't come up with a better acronym. It, it's a suit that it adds like three layers to already what you're wearing uh, to fight chemical uh, agents so that you're, you're protected at least for a little while against a chemical uh, weapon environment. Primarily chemical, you wear it for biological and that's not as probably good, but um, associated with the suit is the mask. You have this mask you have to put on and it's uh, really hard to train in that equipment. It's really hard to operate in that equipment. And if you get into a chemical situation and you have to wear this equipment, um, it's the worst day of your, uh, of your life uh, for trying to, trying to operate in that and then try not to get contaminated. And um, very bad, very bad thing. But see, to operate in that environment, you have to insulate and protect yourself. You have to put on the equipment. You have to wear these gloves. You have to wear boots over your boots. Um, it's, it's a whole, it's a mess. And now you're about half or a third as effective doing your work as you were before. Driving a tank, operating a tank in mop gear it's not great. It's already hard enough. Best way to operate a tank, you know, how you, you know how you know where a tank is going? I mean, they have these little bitty periscopes around the sides for little windows. You know how you know where a tank is going? You open the hatch and you stand on your seat and you look out and then that way you don't drive off a cliff. Literally. I had a friend, one of my loaders was, one of my soldiers, who is a friend, uh, was in a tank that drove off a small cliff, a small ravine in uh, Colorado. And he had, he has, traumatic brain injury from this, probably for the rest of his life. From, from being in that, um, I think the gunner's seat or else the, he was in the driver and it hit his head. It was a major concussion event um, from falling in the tank. I mean, the tank falls at 9.8 meters per second per second. And so the way you drive a tank is you stand on the, outs on, on the seat and you look around. Stop, stop, stop. I thought you said go. I said stop. <laughs> right? And when you're in a chemical situation, you button the hatches, you turn on this overpressure system, you can't see anything. So you're gonna be driving off cliffs. It's, it's really a challenge. But you put on this special equipment because you're going into a chemical environment. Do you think that the spiritual, the thought environment that you and I live in, in this Satan's cosmic system, do you think that it is not attacking you constantly? Do you think your, your gospel is not under opposition? I mean, the seminary professors are denying the, the substitutionary atonement and the theology departments. And it's only a generation after the Old Testament department scholars are saying that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. And they're denying the, the Exodus in 1446 BC. And so, the, I mean, these are in your evangelical seminaries that everyone still thinks because of their name are, are respected. We have a fight. And with one spirit, we contend for the faith of the gospel. Oh, that doctrine causes division. Yeah, Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. We will be dividing over Jesus Christ. But when we have him, we're not divided. We're unified. And we're not intimidated at anything by our opponents, which for them is a sign of destruction. Your courage in the face of those that oppose you on saying, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he died for your sins. And by the way, you can learn everything you need to learn about a Christian worldview in Genesis 1 through 11, the history, the primeval history of God's creation and planet earth and the problem with mankind. For them, you contending with this 
this boldness, not being intimidated by your opponents is a sign of destruction for them, but your boldness is a sign of deliverance for you. The bold are as righteous as a lion. Excuse me. The righteous are as bold as a lion. So we're not pugnacious. We're not looking for a fight. We're in a fight. We don't fight with hatred and malice. We contend for the faith of the gospel with love, with compassion, with the recognition that many have, most have been deceived. I'm sorry that that's the case, but it is the case. It does no good to tell someone that's been deceived that their fantasy divorcement from reality, their idea of how things are, how they, things should be, that contrast with God's word, that that's okay, that that's all good, that, you know, I affirm you. It's not good to affirm the fantasy. It's good to say, I affirm you. You're made in God's image and God has a plan for you, but you've been deceived. And that's a challenge. This boldness, this deliverance, this sign of deliverance through your not being intimidated is from God. The courage comes from God. And Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Because for you, it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The result that you have the same struggle, which you know to be in me and now here to be with me. You asked me about my suffering for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And now you need to look at that example and especially at the example of Christ and stand fast for the word because we have been called to suffer for his sake. So yeah, only contend for the God, only live worthy of the gospel because that's your mission. That's, that's straight out of the great commission. Paul's an apostle of Jesus. And so your life is not about the things that your culture, the air that you're breathing suggests that it's about. Don't come to the mirror of the word, see the comparison and then walk away and forget. Make the adjustment. Let us all make the adjustment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is altogether good news, but the gospel of good news in a fallen and broken and deceived world is rejected. It's anathema. The darkness hates the light. Here we are, Father, in this situation, saved by grace, called to a mission we could not possibly accomplish. And yet your son has said that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. He's also told us that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword and would divide houses. He's also told us, Father, that if the world hated him, it would also hate us. But he has overcome the world. Father, as we contend for the faith, let us keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that our mission of the gospel would truly not be an end in itself, although it's such a great way of focusing our lives, but your glory that what we're doing and contending for the faith is glorifying you. That would be our ultimate end. And let us find joy even as often we find ourselves isolated in this world, rejected of men, and yet approved by God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.